Hello, this is Jack Harity, and for the next hour, I will be reading from the May 26, 2023 issue of the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Heading, Treasury Expects to Run Out of Cash by June 5th. Subheading, The latest estimate comes as Republicans and the White House are trying to reach an agreement to raise the debt ceiling and avoid a crippling default. By Ellen Rappaport. Treasury Secretary Janet L. Yellen said on Friday that the United States will run out of money to pay its bills on time by June 5th, moving the goalpost back slightly while maintaining the urgency for congressional leaders to reach a deal to raise or suspend the debt limit. The letter provided the most precise date yet for when the United States is expected to run out of cash. Ms. Yellen had previously said the nation could hit the so-called X date, the moment when it does not have enough money to pay all of its bills on time, as soon as June 1st. Ms. Yellen's letter comes as the White House and House Republicans have been racing to reach a deal that would lift the nation's $31.5 trillion borrowing cap and prevent the United States from defaulting on its debt. The Treasury Department hit its statutory debt limit on January 19th and has been employing accounting maneuvers, known as extraordinary measures, to ensure the United States can continue paying its bills on time. On Friday evening, President Biden expressed hope that an agreement could soon be clinched. Quote, things are looking good. I'm very optimistic, end quote, Mr. Biden said as he departed the White House for Camp David. Quote, I'm hopeful we'll know by tonight whether we are going to be able to have a deal, end quote. While Ms. Yellen's letter to lawmakers provides a tiny bit of wiggle room, it also makes clear the dire financial situation that the Treasury is facing. The federal government is required to make more than $130 billion in scheduled payments during the first two days of June, including money to veterans and Social Security and Medicare recipients. Those payments will leave the Treasury Department with, quote, an extremely low level of resources, end quote. Ms. Yellen went on to detail billions of dollars of required cash transfers, expenditures, and investments in programs such as Social Security and Medicare trust funds that will further deplete its cash reserves. Quote, our projected resources would be inadequate to satisfy all of these obligations, end quote, Ms. Yellen wrote. Representative Patrick T. McHenry, a North Carolina Republican who is a key player in the talks, said the Treasury Department's more precise date, quote, puts additional pressure on us, end quote. Even before the letter was sent, Mr. McHenry said he was cognizant of how little time remained to prevent a default. Quote, we've got to be in the closing hours because of the timeline, end quote, he said. Quote, I don't know if it's in the next day or two or three, but it's got to come together, end quote. For months, Ms. Yellen has been warning lawmakers that the United States could run out of cash to pay all of its bills on time in early June. The Treasury Secretary said earlier this week that she would try to include more precision in her future updates about when a default might occur. Some House Republicans have expressed doubt that a default could be approaching so quickly, and they have called on the Treasury Secretary to appear before Congress and present her full analysis. Earlier this week, 
members of the House Freedom Caucus, a group of conservative Republicans, wrote a letter to Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, urging party leaders to demand that Ms. Yellen, quote, furnish a complete justification, end quote, of her projection that the United States could run out of cash as soon as June 1st. They accused Ms. Yellen of manipulative timing and suggested that her forecasts should not be trusted because she was wrong about how hot inflation would get. Other independent analyses have also pegged early June as the most likely moment when the United States will hit the X date. The Bipartisan Policy Center said earlier this week that the U.S. faced an elevated risk of running out of cash to pay its bills between June 2nd and 13th if Congress does not raise or suspend the nation's debt limit. While negotiators have been in round-the-clock talks, no deal has yet been announced. Still, the contours of an agreement between the White House and Republicans are taking shape. That deal would raise the debt limit for two years while imposing strict caps on discretionary spending not related to the military or veterans for the same period. As officials have been negotiating, the federal government has been running on fumes. The Treasury Department's cash balance fell to $38.8 billion on Thursday, as the United States inched toward running out of cash to meet its financial obligations. Biden administration officials continued to downplay the possibility that the Treasury Department could avoid a default beyond the X date by prioritizing payments to bondholders. They also dismissed provocative steps such as invoking the 14th Amendment as a way to continue borrowing and instead reiterated calls on Congress to lift the debt limit. Quote, Congress has the ability to do that, and the president is calling on them to act on that as quickly as possible, end quote. Wally Adeyemo, the Deputy Treasury Secretary, told CNN on Friday. Lyle Brainard, director of the White House's National Economic Council, pressed the negotiators to redouble their efforts to get a deal finalized. Quote, Negotiators have made progress toward a reasonable, bipartisan budget agreement in recent days, and the Secretary's letter underscores the urgent need for Congress to act swiftly to prevent defaults. End quote, Ms. Brainard said. In her letter, Ms. Yellen also laid out the additional accounting maneuvers known as extraordinary measures that she was taking to delay a potential default until June 5th. The actions involved moving $2 billion of Treasury securities between the Civil Service Retirement and Disability Fund and the Federal Financing Bank. Quote, the extremely low level of remaining resources demands that I exhaust all available extraordinary measures to avoid being unable to meet all of the government's commitments, end quote, Ms. Yellen wrote. Financial markets have become more jittery as the United States moves closer to the deadline for avoiding a potential default. This week, Fitch Ratings said it was placing the nation's top AAA credit rating on review for a possible downgrade. DBRS Morningstar, another rating firm, did the same on Thursday. Ms. Yellen pointed out in her letter that the standoff is already straining financial markets. Quote, we have learned from past debt limit impasses that waiting until the last minute to suspend or increase the debt limit can cause serious harm to business and consumer confidence, raise short-term borrowing costs for taxpayers, 
and negatively impact the credit rating of the United States, end quote, she wrote. Heading, How Fighting for Conservative Causes Has Helped Ken Paxton Survive Legal Woes. Subheading, With the Texas House set to vote on his impeachment, Mr. Paxton is counting on political support that he's amassed as a Republican legal firebrand. By J. David Goodman. A decade ago, in a courthouse north of Dallas, a lawyer forgot his $1,000 Montblanc pen in a metal detector tray and returned to find that it had been taken. A review of surveillance footage turned up the culprit, Ken Paxton, who was a Texas state senator. A few years later, Mr. Paxton, by then the state's attorney general, suffered a more serious political blow when he was indicted on charges of securities fraud. Then in 2020, several of his most senior staff members at the Attorney General's office accused him of bribery, corruption, and abuse of office. Mr. Paxton has managed to survive it all, in large part because of the key role he has played as one of the most aggressive figures in the conservative legal movement his challenges to the Obama and Biden administrations, and his willingness to contest the results of the 2020 election garnered him the loyalty of Republican primary voters and the endorsement during his re-election to a third term last year of former President Donald J. Trump. Quote, Ken Paxton has served as the tip of the spear on so many of the legal fights about which conservatives care, whether it's immigration or holding the big tech monopolists accountable. End quote, said Mike Davis, a former chief counsel for the Senate Judiciary Committee and the founder of the Article III Project, a nonprofit that promotes and defends conservative judges. He described Mr. Paxton's style as legal warfare. Now, facing his own political showdown in the Texas House of Representatives on Saturday as the House prepares to vote on impeaching him, Mr. Paxton made the stakes plain for his Republican supporters. In a news conference on Friday, he reminded them that he was, quote, leading dozens of urgent challenges against Biden's unlawful policies, end quote, and said that the, quote, illegal impeachment scheme, end quote, was playing into the Democrats' longstanding goal of removing him from office. He then called on supporters to come to the state capitol on Saturday, quote, to peacefully come let their voices be heard, end quote. Mr. Paxton's position at the forefront of an increasingly confident and assertive effort by conservatives to use the law to push policy goals has meant that even now, as he faces opposition from some of his own Republican colleagues, he counts as his defenders many influential voices in the current Republican Party. Quote, Few in America have done more to advance the conservative legal movement, stop the lawless Biden executive onslaught, and defend our shared values, end quote, wrote Stephen Miller, who served as a top advisor to Mr. Trump. Quote, stand with Ken, end quote. Quote, what the rhinos in the Texas State House are trying to do to America First Patriot Ken Paxton is a disgrace, end quote, wrote Mr. Trump's son, Donald Trump Jr., casting Mr. Paxton's fight in some of the same terms that his father has used when battling with fellow Republicans he deems insufficiently conservative. Mr. Paxton has led conservative legal challenges in states around the country, notably on immigration, where he has repeatedly challenged the Biden administration's approach to the border. 
he successfully forced the administration to reinstate a Trump-era policy that compelled migrants to remain in Mexico while awaiting immigration hearings, rather than be allowed to do so in the United States. Mr. Paxton has also been leading a coalition of Republican-led states that for years has been trying to end an Obama-era program known as Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, which protects many migrants brought to the United States as children from deportation. Supporters of DACA have said that the program opened doors for many young people to finish college and enter the workforce. Mr. Paxton and other opponents argued that it rewarded and encouraged illegal immigration. The protracted legal challenge has kept young, undocumented people in a state of limbo. Quote, I've lost track of all the cases called Texas v. United States, end quote, said Josh Blackman, a constitutional law professor at South Texas College of Law, Houston, who has filed briefs in support of some of Mr. Paxton's cases. During the Trump administration, Mr. Paxton would often go on defense, submitting letters and briefs in support of the Republican president when he faced lawsuits, such as over the ban on travel from certain countries and the repeal of DACA, Mr. Blackman said. Mr. Paxton has been active in other areas as well, joining challenges to gun regulations around the country and leading a coalition of 17 states in an antitrust suit against Google, arguing that the company had abused its market power with digital advertisements to quash competition and hurt consumers. And he led a small group of states challenging the Obama administration's Affordable Care Act. Quote, he's the strongest conservative we've ever had as attorney general, end quote, said Matt Machowick, the chair of the Republican Party in Travis County, which includes Austin. Quote, he's been at war with the establishment for some time, end quote. Along the way, Mr. Paxton has made strong allies and many enemies, both among Democrats and within his own party, who have shuddered at the revelations of his various alleged misdeeds over the years, including using his office to try to conceal an extramarital affair. Most of those abuses were detailed in the 20 articles of impeachment presented to the Texas House on Thursday. Quote, My reaction to this is, Frankly, it's frustrating that it took our state leadership so long to do something about his corruption, end quote, said Rochelle Garza, a former Democratic nominee for attorney general who ran against Mr. Paxton in 2022. Quote, they've been complicit with it for years, end quote. When it came to the expense of Penn, a spokesman for Mr. Paxton explained at the time that Mr. Paxton had mistakenly picked it up and later returned it. Nevertheless, his Democratic opponent in the Attorney General's race in 2018 used the surveillance footage in an attack ad that also referenced Mr. Paxton's criminal indictment on the securities fraud charges, a case that is still pending. Quote, he won't steal your pen, end quote, the ad noted of the Democrat. Mr. Paxton won the race. The allegations that form the basis of the articles of impeachment, set to be voted on at 1 p.m. on Saturday, have been publicly known for several years. Many were revealed in 2020, after his top aides accused him of abuse of office, mostly to benefit an Austin real estate investor who had contributed to his campaign and reported their concerns to the FBI. The federal agency began an investigation, but no charges have been filed. Four of the aides, 
conservative lawyers, and senior officials in the Attorney General's office were fired as a result. They subsequently filed suit. The allegations prompted several Republican challengers to jump into the 2022 primary race against Mr. Paxton, including George P. Bush, the grandson of former President George H.W. Bush, and the son of the former Florida governor, Jeb Bush. Mr. Paxton won a primary runoff against Mr. Bush with nearly 70% of the vote, taking almost every county in Texas. The impeachment process began after Mr. Paxton and his former aides said in February that they had reached a $3.3 million settlement in their suit, contingent on the state paying for it. Mr. Paxton requested that the funds be added to the budget, but the Speaker of the House, Dade Felon, said he did not believe it was a good use of taxpayer money. A committee of the House instead began its investigation into the request and underlying allegations. The committee's recommendation of impeachment for Mr. Paxton's, quote, grave offenses, end quote, on Thursday, marked the first official judgment that his actions warranted potential removal from office. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Mr. Paxton, in his news conference on Friday, demonstrated that he would put up a fight. Quote, the House is poised to do exactly what Joe Biden has been hoping to accomplish since his first day in office, end quote, he said. Sabotage our work, my work, as Attorney General of Texas. Throughout the day on Friday, Republicans across Texas received text messages urging them to support Mr. Paxton. The chair of the Republican Party of Texas, a grassroots organization often at odds with establishment leaders, issued a statement calling the impeachment a sham that was empowering Democrats. Dan Rogers, the chair of the Republican Party in Potter County, which includes the city of Amarillo, sent a text message urging people to call their representative and voice support for Mr. Paxton. Quote, he's standing up against the federal government's overreach and the deep state that's coming after our state sovereignty and individual sovereignty, end quote, Mr. Rogers said in an interview. On the floor of the House on Friday, Republican members could be seen talking in small groups before the session got underway. In one instance, Two members loomed over another who was seated and, in quiet but forceful tones, appeared to be urging him to vote no. Quote, it's hearsay upon hearsay upon hearsay, end quote, one of them said, referring to the articles of impeachment and the testimony given by House Committee investigators. Soon after, a loud bang briefly halted conversation in the room. A Houston Republican member, Sam Harless, had opened his wooden desk and then quickly shut it because inside was a rubber snake. Some in the chamber erupted in laughter. Mr. Harless smiled but appeared a little shaken at the practical joke that briefly lightened the mood. Quote, I hate snakes, end quote, he said. Heading, Sedition Sentence for Oath Keepers Leader Marks Moment of Accountability. Subheading, the 18 years in prison given to Stuart Rhodes for a rarely charged crime underscored the lengths to which the Justice Department and the courts have gone in addressing the assault on the Capitol. By Alan Fuhrer. A few hours after Stuart Rhodes, the leader of the Oath Keepers Militia, was sentenced on Thursday to 18 years in prison 
for his role in a seditious conspiracy to instigate the pro-Trump violence of January 6th. Matthew M. Graves, the federal prosecutor who has overseen the government's investigation of the Capitol attack, released a statement with a fact that underscored the landmark nature of the moment. Quote, more people were convicted of seditious conspiracy in connection with the siege of the Capitol on January 6, 2021, end quote, Mr. Graves wrote, quote, than any other criminal event since the statute was enacted during the Civil War, end quote. Nearly two and a half years after supporters of President Donald J. Trump stormed the Capitol in an effort to derail the peaceful transfer of power, Mr. Rhodes' sentencing was the most high-profile statement of accountability yet for an episode that seems certain to occupy a dark place in American history and remains a flashpoint in American politics. Amid the more than 1,000 criminal cases filed so far by the Justice Department against those who played a role in the attack, the prosecution of Mr. Rhodes, accused of plotting to mobilize his followers into storming the Capitol in two separate military-style stacks, stood out in a way that the judge who sentenced him, Amit P. Mehta, articulated in court on Thursday. Quote, Mr. Rhodes, you are convicted of seditious conspiracy. You are a lawyer. You understand what that means, end quote, Judge Mehta said. Quote, seditious conspiracy is among the most serious crimes an individual in America can commit, end quote. Perhaps for just that reason, Sedition charges have been used only rarely over the decades, reserved for select groups of defendants who prosecutors argued uniquely threatened the government. Sedition cases have been filed against communist, Islamic terrorists, and white nationalists. Some of the cases have succeeded, but given that the statute requires prosecutors to prove an agreement to use violent force to oppose the laws or authority of the government, a difficult hurdle to jump over, Many of the cases have failed. The January 6th sedition trials have all taken place just a brief walk from where the attack itself occurred, in the federal courthouse that sits only a few blocks down Constitution Avenue from the Capitol. Scholars of political violence have widely viewed the proceedings as a major effort by the Justice Department to respond to the assault with significant indictments and to go as far as the law will allow in holding the feet of extremists to the fire and in defending the foundations of the democratic system. There have been three separate January 6th sedition trials so far, which have led to a total of 10 sedition convictions and four sedition acquittals. Four more people have pleaded guilty to sedition and avoided going to trial. All of these defendants were members of either Mr. Rowe's organization, the Oath Keepers, or the Proud Boys, another prominent far-right group. But even the flurry of sedition convictions has done little to stem the larger tide of far-right radicalism. Just this month, a Texas man in thrall to Nazi ideology fatally shot eight people at a mall outlet outside of Dallas. In late April, as one of the sedition trials went to the jury, a neo-Nazi group flying a swastika flag protested a drag show in Columbus, Ohio. At the same time, the two main Republican presidential contenders, Mr. Trump and Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, have both suggested that they might issue pardons to many of those convicted of taking part in the events of January 6th. As Mr. Rhodes himself said at his sentencing hearing, 
the Capitol riot defendants are increasingly viewed by many people on the right not as violent criminals, but as patriots and political prisoners. On Friday, two Oath Keepers who were on trial with Mr. Rhodes, Jessica Watkins, and Kenneth Harrelson were given prison sentences of eight and a half years and four years, respectively, though on charges of obstructing the certification of the election, rather than sedition. Four members of the Proud Boys convicted of sedition, including their former leader, Enrique Tarrio, are scheduled to be sentenced in August with a fifth member of the group who is found guilty of lesser conspiracy counts. During all of the trials, two that involved the Oath Keepers and one that focused on the Proud Boys, defense lawyers repeatedly claimed that prosecutors proved their case only by expanding, or even by distorting, the traditional understanding of conspiracy law. The government, the lawyers pointed out, was never able to find a smoking gun indicating that either group had formed a clear plan or reached an explicit agreement to use force to stop the lawful transfer of power on January 6th. And that was despite having collected hundreds of thousands of internal text messages and turning several members of the groups into cooperating witnesses. The lawyers also argued that the defendants who went to trial were not all that violent on January 6th, especially compared with other rioters. Mr. Torrio, for instance, was 50 miles away from Washington in a Baltimore hotel room at the time of the attack. In response, Prosecutors argue that all of the defendants had ties to comrades who did commit violence at the Capitol, or had stashed an arsenal of weapons at the ready in Virginia. They also claimed that criminal conspiracies are rarely hashed in the light of day, and that the agreements by the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys to disrupt the democratic process were reached implicitly and in an unspoken manner. Quote, it can be a mutual understanding reached with a wink and a nod, end quote. Connor Mulrow, a prosecutor at the Proud Boys trial, told the jury during closing arguments, The fact that both judges and juries in Washington have appeared to accept this expansive definition of conspiracy has given the Justice Department prominent victories in prosecuting the rioters who were on the ground on January 6th. But the prosecutions have done little to resolve a different question. What legal responsibility does Mr. Trump bear from an attack intended to keep him in office despite his loss at the polls? That issue is the focus of an investigation by Jack Smith, the special counsel appointed by Attorney General Merrick B. Garland. It is not clear what charges, if any, Mr. Smith might bring against the former president in the January 6th investigation but the outcome of the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys prosecutions has led some lawyers and legal experts to wonder if a similar approach might be used in building a sedition case against Mr. Trump. If all it takes is a wink or a nod, the theory goes, to join conspirators in a plot to violently oppose the government's authority, then could it be possible to construct a seditious conspiracy connecting Mr. Trump to the mob that stormed the Capitol through his incendiary speeches and tweets? More than a year ago, Judge Mehta himself issued a ruling in three civil lawsuits that sought to hold Mr. Trump accountable for the violence of the Capitol attack, suggesting there was evidence that the former president had in fact entered into a conspiracy with the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys on January 6th. More important, Judge Mehta also said that it was plausible that Mr. Trump, largely on the basis of his words alone, 
had aided and abetted the ordinary rioters who threatened or assaulted police officers that day. But Alan Rosenstein, a former Justice Department official who now teaches at the University of Minnesota Law School and has written extensively about sedition, cautions that it could be difficult to use the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys cases as any kind of precedent to build a sedition case against Mr. Trump. Quote, Trump is a unique defendant in a league by himself, end quote, Mr. Rosenstein said. Quote, he's also a chaos agent, and pinning down his actions in a way that shows he did any sort of planning has always been the tricky part, end quote. Heading. Are the Hamptons still hip? Subheading. The summer resort has lost its cool among younger people, who are turned off by housing rules, housing costs, and the culture of conspicuous wealth. By Anna Cote. For years, the Hamptons were a hot summer destination for young, up-and-coming New Yorkers and the old and new moneyed alike. It was a place to see and be seen. Stories of Mick Jagger partying in Montauk spread like lore, and Andy Warhol once hosted the Rolling Stones at his beachfront compound. It wasn't uncommon for young college graduates in the city to save up and pool together to rent a summer house and get a taste of the glamour. In a 1999 interview with New York Magazine, Jay-Z put it simply, quote, I mean, the Hamptons is cool, end quote. The Hamptons still have a mythological reputation, fueled by the celebrity cachet that comes with square footage, seclusion, and ocean waves. Quote, Kaya Gerber, Inna Garten, and Diplo walk into a bar. That is to say, the Hamptons holds a certain je ne sais quoi. Where else would these mega-names be in the same sentence? End quote, said Jacob Rutledge, a 22-year-old model and content creator. But the Hamptons are not what they once were. A slew of factors, extremely expensive housing costs, high even for the Hamptons, strict rules around how many people can share a home, a crackdown on nightlife, and the pandemic fueling more people with children to live there year-round, combined to make summer resort less desirable among everyday 20 and 30-somethings. Despite his instinct to marvel at the Long Island Refuge, Mr. Rutledge, who lives in Ridgewood, Queens, isn't going out to the Hamptons this summer. Instead, he'll be close by at Fire Island. Quote, There's a certain air when you take the boat to Fire Island, like a school bus taking these gay men to an amusement park, end quote, said Mr. Rutledge. Quote, the culture that Fire Island provides will always be the reason it stays in style. When I'm 50 plus, find me in the Hamptons, end quote. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Even Gen Z's favorite 80-something icon and recent Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue cover star, Martha Stewart, has divested, selling her East Hampton estate in 2021 for $16.5 million. Subheading, how did the Hamptons become the Hamptons? The hipness of the Hamptons has always been cyclical, defined by whoever was trying to take control of it next, going from bohemian cool, upscale art world cool, and eventually to glamour and glitterati cool. Over the decades, new groups of people would come to the Hamptons and try to make the resort theirs, warping and grooming them to fit their own unique needs and desires. Quote, 
The continuity in the Hamptons is that really wealthy people are looking to find something new to conquer, end quote, said Corey Dolgan, the author of The End of the Hamptons, and a professor of sociology at Stonehill College. Sometime after the existence of Pangaea, but before Gwyneth Paltrow bought a place there, the Hamptons formed as a region on the southeastern end of Long Island, surrounded by the Atlantic Ocean, as in, there's a lot of desirable waterfront real estate. Before European colonizers arrived in the 1600s, Native Americans, including the Shinnecock and Montauk tribes, occupied much of eastern Long Island. The outsiders co-opted indigenous values and culture, enforcing a money economy and introduced a patriarchal system of governance, Mr. Dolgan said. Clashes over land use between the newcomers and indigenous people continue today. Wealthy residents and local officials have objected to the Shinnecock people's construction of highway billboards and plan to open a casino on its reservation, both attempts to dampen the high poverty rate they face. Centuries later, another early wave of outsiders, artists and writers, descended on the land. In the late 1800s, Walt Whitman published several works on his fascination with the natural wonder of the Hamptons. In an article in the Brooklyn Standard, he wrote, quote, To a mineralogist, I fancy Montauk Point must be a perpetual feast. Even to my unscientific eyes, there were innumerable wonders and beauties all along the shore and edges of the cliffs, end quote. Such descriptions, quote, encouraged people, especially the bohemian, artist types, and young people with money, to go out to this unspoiled land, end quote, Mr. Dolgan said. The migration of artists then began to entice the wealthy to build summer cottages there, Mr. Dolgan said. In the post-World War II era, the Hamptons drew a new group of artists. With a loan from Peggy Guggenheim, in 1945, Lee Krasner and Jackson Pollock bought a home in the East Hampton Hamlet of Springs for $5,000. The post-war economic boom, along with the construction of the urban planner Robert Moses's Highways Along Long Island, allowed for people of means to go out to the Hamptons more frequently and for shorter stretches of time, Mr. Dolgan pointed out. The reputation of the Hamptons as a weekend getaway and summer vacation spot continued to grow, and by the 1990s and 2000s, quote, everybody wants a piece of the Hamptons, end quote, Mr. Dolgan said. The dot-com boom and the rise of telecommuting led to, quote, a new wave of money trying to put their imprintur on the land, end quote. This is when the Hamptons became fashionable in an aspirational sense, and college graduates would save up to rent summer homes together. Quote, for people who are up and coming, end quote, Mr. Dolgan said, quote, they have to have a place in the Hamptons, end quote. In 1998, Diddy threw the first of his strictly all-white dress code parties at his East Hampton home, which Paris Hilton called iconic. The next year, Ivana Trump and Busta Rhymes sat together at Jay-Z's 4th of July soiree. One tabloid story that epitomized the craze at the time was of Lizzie Grubman, a publicist who New York Magazine crowned the, quote, reigning queen of New York nightlife, end quote. In 2001, after a fight with a bouncer outside of a club in Southampton, 
Miss Grubman backed her Mercedes into a crowd of partygoers. It would become known as the Summer of Lizzie. Subheading. So then what happened? Now, it's more likely to be coined the Summer of Sleepiness. Last summer, when Miss Paltrow's daughter, Apple Martin, threw a bash at their Amagansett estate, cops reportedly shut it down. But Miss Paltrow's Cartier-sponsored pajama party, where sleep milk was handed out as a party favor, didn't ruffle any feathers. Decades back, towns began rolling out rules that would regulate the revelry. In 1975, East Hampton adopted legislation that barred groups of more than four unrelated people from living together in houses. Southampton has restrictions specifically on the number of people that can occupy bedrooms. For a while, many looked the other way as friends, lovers, and strangers split the cost of a summer house more than a dozen ways, sharing rooms, mattresses, and more. In an episode of Sex in the City, Samantha Jones tells her friends about her 25-year-old assistant, who has, quote, a summer share in Bridgehampton with 18 other girls. They have to sleep in shifts, end quote. Such a setup would be difficult to come by today, as residents began demanding stricter enforcement of the long-time laws. Quote, the long tradition of dozens of young people crowding into a Hampton's house for a summer of wild abandon is under attack, end quote. The Times reported in 2003, following several police raids, neighbors spying on each other, and Southampton imposing tougher penalties for violators. In a clampdown reminiscent of Footloose, even dancing can be punishable. Shagwong Tavern, an unfussy, old-school restaurant and bar in Montauk that dates back to the 1920s, was a haunt visited by John Lennon, Bianca Jagger, and Andy Warhol. Get Off My Cloud by the Rolling Stones blasted from the jukebox, and people shimmied shoulder to shoulder into the AM. Present day, a sign out front reads, Piano Player Wanted Must Have Knowledge of Opening Clams. All walks of life have known that they can come together there through music. Quote, It's for everybody. The fisherman, the Wall Street guy, the celebrity, the contractor. End quote. Said John Krasner, who bought the tavern in 2015. Last year, a building inspector ruled that moving furniture to allow dancing meant that Shag Wong was illegally operating as a nightclub, which is a special permitted use in the region. Quote, we're not going to make money being the best filet mignon place in town. We're a bar, end quote, Mr. Krasner said. Quote, if people want to listen to a band and dance, then hell yeah, that's what a bar is for, end quote. Subheading, rumors of fancy people. But who are the Hamptons for? It's a given these days that it takes money to enjoy the Hamptons. During the pandemic, many New Yorkers moved to the Hamptons full-time and the region's DNA changed. More businesses stayed open year-round and school enrollment went up. According to census data, the population of East Hampton rose by more than 30% from April 2010 to April 2021. Prices went up even more. For the first quarter of 2023, the average sales price of a home reached a record-breaking $3.08 million, according to Douglas Elliman. Rentals aren't cheap either. Quote, for a relatively updated three-bedroom house with a pool, you're looking at like $1,000 a night, end quote, 
said Joseph Van Asco, a broker, quote, the high end begins around $100,000 a month, end quote. Housing is probably the number one driver of why the 20s and 30s are sort of retreating from the Hamptons, end quote, said Britton Bistrian, an Amagonset-based land use consultant. Quote, a share house back in the day in the 80s and 90s and even into the 2000s was something that was attainable to a young professional, and I would say that it's not that anymore. They've been priced out just as much as working class people have been priced out. Demand is going down. There have been reports that summer rental prices are dropping, as there are more homes in a region that people are willing to rent them. But that might not even be enough to draw back trendy young folks. The Hamptons represent a conspicuous wealth that isn't as celebrated as it may have been in the 1990s and 2000s. The media we consume is largely dominated by eat-the-rich plot lines. Think Triangle of Sadness, The Menu, and White Lotus. So maybe it's not unanticipated that young people would have little interest in conforming to the lifestyle of the Hamptons. Quote, I think of the Hamptons as a vacation spot for a certain subset of affluent New Yorkers who probably use summer as a verb rather than a noun, end quote, said Jade Song, a 26-year-old art director and the author of Chlorine, a novel. She won't be leaving New York this summer, but will still get her beach fix. Quote, I will be eating Varaniki Logmen in Kanakapuri at Brighton Beach, end quote, Ms. Song said. Sonny Hostin, 54, a co-host on ABC's The View and an author, also used to feel that same way. When she was in her 20s, Ms. Hostin had heard rumors of this place where fancy people visited. Even though she was intrigued, Ms. Hostin wasn't in a rush to visit at first. Quote, it didn't have the reputation, in my view, as a haven for people of color, end quote, she said. Quote, while inviting, in my mind, because it was this glitzy, wealthy, rich place, I didn't really gravitate toward it at first because I didn't know if it was a fit for me, end quote. But her opinion changed in her 30s when she discovered the historically black beach community known as Sands in Sag Harbor. She began renting a home there during the summer months, and it quickly became a tradition. Quote, I have memories of clam digging in the bay, searching for crabs with my kids, end quote, she said. Quote, I have real history there now, end quote. Inspired by these experiences, Ms. Hostin wrote Summer on Sag Harbor, Set in Sands. She hopes it can help change young people's minds about the Hamptons. Quote, I can't believe I felt that way, end quote, Ms. Hostin said. Quote, they need to visit ASAP even if it's just for one day. One day is all you need to know that you belong there, end quote. Heading, how a novel about video games became a surprise bestseller. Subheading, Gabrielle Zevin did not expect a wide audience for Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, her novel about game developers. It became a blockbuster with staying power. By Alexandra Alter. Five and a half years ago, Gabrielle Zevin was in a slump. She had recently published her ninth novel and sales were sluggish. She needed a distraction, so she turned, as she often does, to video games. But when she tried to play the adventure game Gold Rush, 
she discovered that the version she had played obsessively as a kid no longer existed. It felt like a chapter of her childhood had been erased. Quote, this part of my life was gone, end quote, she said. The feeling of loss yielded a kernel of an idea, which Zevin jotted in a notebook. Story of two game designers. The games they make are their lives. Those two sentences eventually grew into her latest novel, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, which follows two video game developers who endure creative highs and lows that parallel Zevin's own meandering path as a novelist. Zevin had initially figured that there wouldn't be much of an audience for a literary novel set in a world of game development, so she was elated last summer when the novel became a word-of-mouth phenomenon. Fueled by passionate independent booksellers, book clubs, and zealous fans posting on social media. Even more surprising than the novel's breakout success is its staying power. Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, which came out in July, has remained on the New York Times bestseller list for 33 weeks and sold more than a million copies globally. So far this year, it has sold some 575,000 copies in the United States, outpacing last year's sales of 300,000. It has racked up around 175,000 five-star ratings on Goodreads and roughly 28,000 on Amazon. It is currently the number three best-selling adult hardcover fiction title of 2023, according to Circana Bookscan. The relentless buzz has put Zevin in an odd position as a mid-career novelist. Even though Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow is not her first book, or even her first to be a bestseller, many readers are coming to her work for the first time. Parentheses. Oprah Daly mistakenly called it, quote, one of the year's most ingenious debuts, end quote, end parentheses. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Quote, when someone has a breakout moment like this, people are always like, oh, you appeared out of nowhere, end quote, said the novelist Celeste Inc., who praised the book as a, quote, page-turner, but also really this technical marvel, end quote. Quote, she didn't come out of nowhere, end quote, Ing said. Zevin has been publishing at a frenetic pace for nearly two decades, and yet she has rarely repeated herself. Since her debut in 2005, she has written a family drama about war and capitalism, a futuristic dystopian series for young adults, a fable-like YA novel about the afterlife, a quirky novel about a cranky bookseller who unexpectedly finds love and a bitingly funny one about politics, sexism, and the double standards women face for sexual indiscretions. Quote, she has had it all her career. She's had a global smash, but she's also had books that absolutely failed to connect for whatever reason, end quote, said Emma Straub, a novelist and an owner of the independent Brooklyn store Books Are Magic, where... Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow has been the top-selling title this year. Quote, For those of us on the backside of 40 who have half a dozen books under our belts, this is so beautiful to watch. She is operating at the height of her powers, and people are noticing. End quote. Growing up in Boca Raton, Florida, where both of her parents worked for IBM, Zevin was lonely most of the time. 
the only child of a Korean-American mother and a Jewish father, she often felt culturally adrift and out of place. One day, her father, a programmer, brought home a computer loaded with games, including Alley Cat, in which the player is a mischievous cat who jumps through windows into different apartments. Quote, I remember thinking that the game solved a very particular problem for me, which was the problem of solitude, end quote, she said. Quote, it became like an instant friend, end quote. From there, she discovered games like King's Quest IV and Oregon Trail, which felt like immersive world she could disappear into. Quote, these were really formative stories for me, end quote, she said. She majored in English at Harvard University, where she met her partner, the director Hans Canosa. After graduating, they moved to New York. Zevin worked furiously on film scripts and plays. One day, she had an idea that did not seem right for any of those formats. It became her novel Elsewhere, about a teenage girl who dies in a bike accident and wakes up in an afterlife where people age backward until they are reborn. Around the same time, she had the idea for Margaret Town, a surreal novel about a young man whose love for a woman named Margaret draws him into an alternate world. Both novels were published in 2005, when Zevin was 27, but they had wildly different trajectories. Critics praised Margaret Town, which Miramax's books published as an adult novel, but it failed commercially, selling around 4,200 print copies, according to Circana Bookscan. Elsewhere, a young adult novel that Farrer, Strauss, and Guro released several months later went on to sell more than 350,000 copies. Over the next eight years, Zevin wrote at a frenetic pace. She published another young adult novel and a futuristic YA trilogy, and she spent years working on another literary novel, The Hole We're In, about a family struggling with financial debt. But nothing matched the commercial success of Elsewhere. Then, in 2014, Zevin released The Storied Life of A.J. Fikrai, a love letter to literary culture that centers on an ornery bookstore owner with narrow taste whose horizons are expanded when he falls in love. For reasons that still mystify Zevin, it became a global blockbuster, selling more than 850,000 copies in the United States and more than 4 million worldwide. It was adapted into a feature film in 2022 that was based on a screenplay Zevin wrote with Canosa, her partner, as the director. Again, it seemed like Zevin's breakout moment, and again, success proved fleeting. Three years later, when she published Young Jane Young, about a congressional intern who is publicly shamed for having an affair with her boss, it drew strong reviews but sold fewer than 10,000 hardcover copies. Zevin wallowed for a bit, unsure of what to do next. When she had the idea for a novel about game designers in late 2017, she worried that she wouldn't be able to pull it off. Even though she had played video games all her life, she knew next to nothing about how they were made. Quote, it seemed that the subject was so vast, and I knew that if it were to work, it would have to be probably better than anything I had done before, end quote, she said. She spent years researching the novel, which spans some three decades in the lives of Sam and Sadie. They bond over video games as children and then build a successful company together, 
making increasingly sophisticated games as technology improves. Zevin read books about gaming culture and design and watched gamers on YouTube and the live streaming service Twitch. She played old video games like the original Super Mario Bros and newer ones that she wouldn't normally be drawn to, like first-person shooter games, and immersed herself in a cinematic quality ones like The Last of Us. During the hours she spent playing, she was often struck by the game's narrative complexity and ability to conjure empathy. A few times, Zevin almost abandoned the book, worried that the subject wouldn't resonate with a wide audience. When her literary agent, Douglas Stewart, sent out the manuscript in January 2021, he felt in some ways as if he were introducing her for the first time. Quote, Despite the fact that Gabrielle had several big successes before, there are people who have never heard of her before this, end quote, he said. A frenzied bidding war with ten publishers broke out, and not one, paying a seven-figure advance. Shortly after, an auction for screen rights drew 25 bidders, and Paramount Pictures bought them for $2 million. Foreign rights sold in 37 territories. Zevin went on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. The novel landed on the New York Times bestseller list at number three in July and stayed for eight weeks before dropping off. Then, in December, critics' best of 22 lists gave the novel a second life, and it sailed back onto the bestseller lists. Knopf, which initially printed 60,000 copies, has reprinted the book 21 times to keep up with runaway sales. This spring, big stores like Walmart and Target, as well as some grocery chains, started carrying it for the first time. Zevin, who lives in Los Angeles with Canosa and their dogs, Frank, a pug mix, and Leia, a dashund mix, is writing the screenplay for Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, a project that presents new narrative challenges. Looking back, Zevin said she felt fortunate that she was able to carve such an eclectic path without confining herself to a particular niche. Quote, I've had enough successes, end quote, she said, quote, to balance out the failures over the years, end quote. Heading, just between us squirrels, there might be trouble in the Arctic dating scene. Subheading, climate change appears to be disrupting the hibernation of females in the far north, scientists say, and that could affect mating season. By Melissa Godin. Male Arctic ground squirrels go through puberty every year. As if that wasn't hard enough, now the females have a problem too. According to a paper published on Thursday in the journal Science, climate change appears to be making them emerge from hibernation earlier. That matters because it could throw off the timing of the animal's mating cycle. Typically, males come out of hibernation before females to prepare for the spring mating season. They need time to reach sexual maturity again every year because their testosterone levels drop sharply during the winter. Then, the females wake up. But scientists have found that, as temperatures rise, female ground squirrels are emerging up to 10 days earlier than they used to. Researchers think it has to do with earlier thawing of the soil. The hibernation pattern of the males, meanwhile, does not appear to be changing. Quote, this study suggests that male and females of the same species can respond differently to climate change, end quote, said Helen E. Chimura, a research ecologist with the United States Forest Service who is lead author on the paper. Quote, 
This could have important implications for reproduction, end quote. The squirrel's troubles are part of a much larger crisis. Around the world, wildlife is struggling. On land, the main cause is humans taking over too much of the planet, erasing the biodiversity that was there before. In oceans, the main problem is overfishing. Climate change is making survival even more difficult. For now, Arctic ground squirrels are still plentiful in the wild. The International Union for Conservation of Nature classifies them as a species of least concern, meaning that they are not threatened or in need of conservation efforts. But the paper says the new hibernation mismatch, quote, has the potential to affect their survival probability, end quote. Any decline in squirrel populations could disrupt the local food web. Almost all Arctic predators, from wolves to eagles, rely on them as a food source. Although the Arctic is warming faster than any other region on Earth, there is relatively little research on how this heating is affecting animals. This new paper, which covers more than 25 years in northern Alaska, is one of the first long-term research projects to present strong evidence that warming is directly changing the physiological processes of Arctic species. Quote, this study is relatively unusual because it shows that warming is directly impacting a mammal, end quote, said Corey T. Williams, an assistant professor at Colorado State University and a co-author of the study. Quote, some people might say, okay, a 10-day advance over 25 years doesn't seem that fast. But in terms of climate, that's incredibly fast, end quote. Arctic ground squirrels might look cute, but males can be very territorial. They get into a lot of fights during mating season, some deadly. They have tails, but not long, bushy ones like squirrels further down south. And they make distinctive whistling noises that could easily be mistaken for the chirp of a small bird. Some Alaska natives call them parka squirrels because of their fur makes a nice, warm fringe for the hood of a coat. Scientists have long been interested in their hibernation patterns. During the long winter sleep, the squirrel's core body temperature can drop to about 27 degrees Fahrenheit, or roughly minus 3 degrees Celsius, with their resting heart rate falling as low as 3 beats per minute. More knowledge about that process could lead to advances in therapeutic hypothermia, a medical treatment in which the body temperature is lowered to prevent injury. It's sometimes used after cardiac arrest. But the most pressing challenge, scientists say, is getting a grip on the changes happening in the far north. Quote, the big gap is just understanding what is happening in the Arctic in general, end quote, Dr. Williams said. Quote, this study shows why we need long-term projects to understand the changes happening across different levels, end quote. You've been listening to a reading of articles and features from the May 26, 2023 issue of the New York Times. Your reader has been Jack Harity. Thank you for listening.